If you have your Bibles, you can open them to John chapter 17. That's where we'll be today. My name is Adam. If you don't know me, if we haven't met yet, I'm part of the team here at Bray Park Community Church and it's a privilege to be able to open up God's Word for us today. As we land the sermon series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks now called Praying with Jesus, exploring Jesus' prayer in John 17. See, on the night before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven. And what he prayed for is incredibly powerful and incredibly profound. And we've been exploring that in the last couple of weeks. If you remember back to the first week of the series, we looked at those verses where Jesus prays for himself. Last week we looked at the section where Jesus prayed for his disciples. And today we're going to be looking at when Jesus turns to pray for the church, for us. Jesus, here in the hours before his death, gazes into the years, the decades, the centuries to come. And he prays for all those who would come to believe in him. And I wonder, what do you think Jesus would pray for? What do you think would be Jesus' prayer request for his church, for his people? What does Jesus most deeply want for us, for his people? Is it for us to be cool, to be relevant, edgy, creative, well-dressed, have big buildings? Is it for us to be powerful? Wealthy, influential, comfortable, pain-free? What is the heart of Jesus for his people? What does Jesus most deeply want for the church? Well, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you've turned there to John chapter 17. We'll pick it up in verse 20 as we read Jesus praying for the church. This is what we discover. Verse 20, Jesus says, My prayer is not for them alone. In other words, that's referring to the disciples. Jesus is saying, I'm not just praying for the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Now let me just pause here for a moment because I think this is so important and so profound. Jesus had gathered this group of followers around him. They were called disciples or or they came to be known as apostles. And they would be the ones who carried the message about Jesus into the world. We read all about this in the next book of the Bible, the book of Acts. And we sit here today in fulfilment of this prayer and of this verse. I mean, here we are in Brisbane in 2018 in Australia... And Jesus prayed this prayer in Jerusalem around the year AD 33, which, by the way, is around, Jerusalem is around 14,000 kilometers from here, and Jesus prayed this prayer almost 2,000 years ago. Yet we sit here today, believing in Jesus, worshipping Jesus, because the message about Jesus was carried into the world by these disciples and by faithful Christians through the centuries. And it made, all, it made its way all the way down to us, down under, 
And I think this is so amazing. The message of Jesus has changed the world. The church of Jesus Christ is found in every corner of the world. And the reason I want to point this out is because this should change your attitude towards the church. It should change the way you think about the church. First of all, it should reassure you. I mean, at the moment, there is, we might say, increasing pressure, cultural pressure on the church and on Christians. We're not that popular at the moment. And, you know, this can be confusing and it can be disorienting for us. But you should know that the church has always faced pressure and has always faced persecution. Jesus promised us that it would. But the church has always prevailed. In fact, I love what Theodore Beza says. He was one of the reformers. This is so cool. He says, the church of Christ is an anvil. You can see an anvil on the screen there. It's the thing that steel workers and metal, metal workers use to, to bang on. That's the scientific definition. The church of Christ is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Many hammers throughout the years have beat against the church. And the church is still standing. And this is because Jesus promised that it would. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus, the Son of God, will build his church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. This should reassure you. It should also refocus you. If you are part of the church of Jesus Christ, you are part of something much, much bigger than just yourself. You know, the church is not just an optional extra on the weekend for religious people. The church is not just a service that we attend once or twice a month or, or, or when we're feeling up to it. The church is the people of God called to the mission of God in this world. And every single Christian is called to be actively contributing and to be an active part of this mission. Now I know that sometimes we get our priorities out of order and we don't always mean for it to happen. Sometimes we just drift. But when we drift, we always drift downstream. And God is calling on some of us today to stop drifting and to get decisive. To draw near to him and to draw near to his people. Jesus loves his church. And on the eve of his death, he prays for it, for us. And this is what he prays for. This is what he wants most deeply for us. He says, my prayer is not for them alone, not just the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one, Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, 
I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wow. Now there are three clear things that Jesus prays for in this passage for his people. There are three clear requests that Jesus makes and each request has incredible significance for our, for our lives and for our church. Let's have a look at them in turn. Number one, Jesus prays that the church may be united. Now this is obvious in the passage. In verse 21, Jesus prays that all of them may be one. In verse 23, so that we may be brought to complete unity. When Jesus turns to pray for the church, his deepest concern for us is not our coolness, not our relevance, not our comfort. It is our unity. Now I wonder if this is what comes into your mind when you think about the church. I wonder if you were asked to describe the church in one word, would that one word be one? Would it be unified? Perhaps not, and that is understandable in, in many cases. I mean, if you just drive down this main road out here, you will eventually come across other churches from other denominations. You'll come across Baptist churches and Uniting churches and Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches and Pentecostal churches, and I could keep going on and on and on. Or perhaps you've been part of a church before where there was an ugly split There was a breakdown and the church divided. You see, all of this that we see going on around us leads us to ask the question, well, has Jesus' prayer failed? Has Jesus' prayer gone unanswered? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand what Jesus is actually praying for in this verse, what he means by when he's calling us to this kind of unity. And there are two things we see about our unity in this passage. The first thing we see is that our unity is spiritual. Now, if you're a note taker, this is like a sub point from point number one. I sometimes get in trouble from note takers for not being clear. So, 1A. (laughs) Our unity is spiritual. Look at verse 21 again. It's on the screen. Jesus says that all of them may be one, Father, just as... You are in me and I am in you. In other words, the foundation of our unity is the unity of God. You see, God is not a solitary being. The Bible tells us that there is one God who exists in three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. I spoke on Friday night on the topic of the Trinity at youth. I was given ten minutes to explain the Trinity to teenagers. Don't ask them how it went. God has eternally existed in perfect love, perfect joy, perfect harmony. And because we are created in the image of God, we too are called to live in unity and harmony with one another. The people of God are called to reflect 
the unity of God. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds like a pretty big deal. That sounds pretty significant. I mean, are we even capable of this? And the answer is no. Not on our own. But the good news of Christianity is that we're not on our own. God has united himself to us in Jesus Christ. Through Christ we receive the power of God. We're included in the love of God. We participate in the life of God. This is exactly what Jesus says in verse 23. These are some amazing verses. He says, I in them, Jesus in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. We are united to one another because we are all united to God. The foundation of our unity is our common relationship with God. And what this means is that our unity is not something that we create. It's not something that we came up with. It's not a result of our ingenuity. It's something that God has given to us and that God has done for us. And this, this explains why the church of Jesus Christ still exists today. Why it's an anvil that has worn out so many hammers. It's not because we've gotten really good at church. It's not because we've gotten really good at writing sermons and singing songs and having picnics, though they're good things, and please come to the picnic after church. Love to see you there. It's because God is with his people, and he always has been, and he always will be. Our unity is spiritual. God is with us. But we must also understand, and this is really, really important, If our unity is real, it will not remain merely spiritual. It will become practical. In other words, the proof of our spiritual union with God will be practical, tangible unity with one another. And this will be given its most visible expression within a local church like ours. And this is the second aspect we see of our unity. 1B. Our unity is tangible. And this is implicit in kind of the second half of verse 23 where Jesus prays that we'd be brought to complete unity and then he says, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In other words, our unity will be seen and it will make an impact in the world. It will not just be theoretical, it will be tangible. It won't just be factual, it will be felt. It will be experienced. Now what does this unity look like? What does it mean for us to be one? Well, of course it means a lot and it's a a big question, but let me just say it's more than just kind of a, a group hug. It is real unity in real relationships, with real people, in a real church. In other words, it is real kindness to meet real needs. It is real forgiveness when there has been real hurt and real offence. It is real acceptance, even in the midst of real difference. It is real respect, even when there is real disagreement. It is a real refusal to gossip, lie, slander or grumble. 
It is genuine love amongst believers who are genuinely different, but have one thing that unites them deeper than anything else. Jesus Christ. Now, the way that we do this practically, the way that this kind of works itself out in our lives and in our church, it's going to sound kind of super spiritual when I give you the answer, but it's just the way it is. The way that this works itself out practically in our lives, in our church, is for us to be continually filled with the love of God. Listen to this. A heart aloof from God will grow aloof from others. A heart that draws near to God will draw near to others. It's only as the love, the forgiveness, the acceptance of Jesus Christ flows into our hearts that it will flow out of our hands and mouth and lives to others. And how does God love us? I mean, how does the love of God flow into our lives? Well, I don't know if you noticed this at the end of verse 23, but it is amazing. Jesus prays and he says, Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now that phrase, even as, it literally means just as or to the same degree. Jesus is telling us that the Father loves those who belong to Christ to the same degree and in the same way that he loves Christ. R.C. Sproul is a theologian. He comments on this verse and it's so wonderful. He says, In his tender mercies, God has an incredible capacity to love the unlovely. How do I know that? He knows every ugly part of my soul and of my life, yet he loves me. How can that be? We always have to understand that the love he has for us is not because we are inherently lovable. He loves us in the Son. And the same love that he pours out to his Son, he pours out to those who are in the Son. When this love becomes real to your heart, it not only changes you from the inside out, it changes the way you treat others, the way you talk about others, the way you relate to others. It softens our heart, it hardens our resolve to become a person of peace, unity and reconciliation. And let me share with you an example of what this looked like in the life of someone else. Bishop... Festo Kivangere is a Christian leader from Uganda, or was a Christian leader from Uganda. And he tells the story about the time that the Lord made this real for him. He says, At one time, William Nagenda and I were sharing an exhausting preaching itinerary overseas. Along the way, I became jealous of the success of my brother. I became critical of everything he said. Each sentence was wrong or ungrammatical or unscriptural. His gestures were hypocritical. Everything about my brother was wrong, wrong, wrong. The more I criticised, the colder I became. I was icy and lonely and homesick. I was under conviction by the Holy Spirit, but I went on seeking to justify myself and to put the blame on William. At last, I repented and then had to face the difficult task of admitting my bad attitude to William. We were about to start off for a meeting where we were to preach together. And I said, William, 
I am sorry. I'm very sorry. You have sensed the coldness. Yes, I felt the coldness, but I didn't know what had happened. What is it? I became jealous of you. Please forgive me. That dear brother got up and hugged me and we both shed tears of reconciliation. My heart was warm and when he preached, the message spoke to me deeply. When the love of God becomes real to our hearts, it moves us out to others. To put it simply and hopefully in a memorable way, we show space and we give grace. We show space to one another. We know that we're all on a journey and no one's arrived yet. So we don't accuse, we don't embarrass, we don't manipulate. We extend space and sympathy and understanding. And we extend grace to one another. We give others the benefit of the doubt. We forgive, we reconcile, we restore. In fact, we recognise that when we hit relational speed bumps, relational breakdown, we recognise that the problem is not always with the other person. We recognise that sometimes we too are part of the problem. In fact, I read this week a cartoon of an old man and he's sitting in a rocking chair. And as he rocks in his rocking chair, loud squeaks could be heard. Now, after several attempts to get rid of the squeaks in the chair, the angry man stands up, gets his shotgun and blows the chair to smithereens. Now, in the final frame of the cartoon, the old man is walking away, but the squeaks continued. They were in his knees. See, sometimes the problems that exist in our relationships, in our churches, they can be found within ourselves. And before we destroy everything else, go after other people, blow things up, we need to honestly evaluate our own hearts, the squeak that is coming from our own hearts. Because in a church community that's infused by the love of God, we show space and we give grace. And as we do that, as we pursue this kind of unity together, our evangelism efforts will be far more effective and far more compelling. This is the second thing that Jesus prays for in this prayer. Don't point two and three are much shorter. Jesus prays that the world may be persuaded. Jesus prays that the world might come to know who he is and why he came. Now, how does that happen? How does someone come to be persuaded about Jesus? Well, obviously, it's going to involve words. It will involve us telling people about Jesus, sharing the message about Jesus. In fact, Romans 10 in verse 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian because someone shared the message about Jesus with you. Maybe initially you were drawn to their example or to something else, but someone had to sit down and unpack the message of Jesus with you. Our evangelism will involve our words, but it will also involve more than just our words. Evangelism, mission, is visible as well as verbal. This is what Jesus said in verse 23. He said, So that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them. The world will become convinced 
of our message about Jesus through our love for one another, through our unity. And this is why our relationships in the church really matter. This is why mission evangelism is a team sport. We're all involved. I mean, I can get up here every Sunday and preach about Jesus as clearly and boldly as I can, but the credibility of that message will be defined by, in large part, the quality of our relationships in our community. And what this means is that, according to the prayer of Jesus, the biggest barrier to evangelism in your life, it's not so much your lack of knowledge, it's realities in our lives together like gossip, insensitivity, oversensitivity, jealousy, bitterness, greed, all forms of lovelessness. When these attitudes typify the people of God, they turn people away from God. Thomas Manton said, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. But at the same time, unity in the church can build belief in the world. People are drawn to God when there is unity and relational beauty among the people of God. And this is why the New Testament speaks so regularly, so forcefully about those attitudes and actions that can enhance our life together. Attitudes and actions like love, humility, forgiveness, kindness, acceptance, burden-bearing, truth-telling, resource-sharing, peace-seeking, encouragement-giving, and so on. When a church walks in disunity and relational ugliness, Jesus is maligned in the world. When a church walks in deep unity and relational beauty, Jesus is made non-ignorable in the world. In fact, one commentator on this passage, he shares a story, his name's Roger Fredrickson, he shares a story about when he was pastoring a church and they held a service of public reconciliation with another congregation that they had split from 20 years earlier. And he writes and he says, As we sang, Great is thy faithfulness, many people embraced in the crowded sanctuary, and their tears of joy and gratitude were mingled. The next day on the street, people stopped some of us saying they had heard the good news. The message we proclaimed had become credible. Jesus prays that his church may be united, that the world may be persuaded, and finally Jesus prays that his mission may be completed. In verses 24 to 26, Jesus returns to some of the themes from the beginning of his prayer. And he tells us that he longs to return to the glory of God's presence. But this time, he says, he longs for us to join him. He desires for all those who love him to be with him and to see him for who he really is. You see, the greatest goal and good and benefit of Christianity is not the forgiveness of sins. That's great, but it's a a means to an end. The greatest benefit is God. It's being with God himself. And that's where Jesus wants us to be. That's what Jesus longs for us. 
And this is why Jesus came from heaven to earth, because when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, he made a way for this to be a reality. For us to stand before God, in the presence of God, known, loved, accepted, forgiven. But his mission is not yet fully completed. It will be when he returns from heaven and brings the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. But Jesus' mission in the world continues to this day. Jesus is still at work in the world. That's what he said in verse 26. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Jesus is still at work in the world and he's at work in the world through the presence of his spirit among his people so that we might be living witnesses to the power, the presence and the love of God. And this is why the unity within our church, it's not just a little garnish on the side, a little cherry on top. It is God's strategy to reach the world. And this was important enough for Jesus on the night before his death to pray for it. Do we share Jesus' same passion for his people? Or is it just an option and do we prioritise other things? I mean, what's your next step today? Maybe you need to reconcile with someone. Maybe you need to ask someone for forgiveness or extend forgiveness to someone. Maybe you need to repent of harsh criticism or endless fault-finding or endless comparison. Maybe you need to stop withholding yourself from the church community. Maybe you just need to start showing up more often or, or maybe you need to start giving or serving. I mean, I don't know what your next step is today. But God does. And I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now about what you might need to do next. And the next step is for you to go from here, ask God for his help, and to do it. It might be really, really hard. But God is with you. And Jesus has done everything necessary for us to come to God, to know him, our part, is simply to open ourselves up to him and to obey him for our good and for his glory in the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have made us one with you. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it but you have freely given it to us as a gift through Jesus Christ. Lord, how could we not, in response to that, but pursue oneness with one another for your sake in the world? We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Church, we're going to stand and respond now, singing Jesus paid it off.